it's one of the things that became very important for me later on training the younger people were to help them understand that this there's a risk when you go into this business and that you have to be ready for some of the, the effects. Welcome to the live drop. This is the Mad Minute for my guest, Tom Kokora, 24-year CIA veteran, senior security manager. Tom talks about his book, Guardian, Life in the Crosshairs of the CIA's War on Terror and a Career in the Clandestine Security. I wanted to talk to him about the mindset of stealth and getting off the X and how to protect those in the business of risking it all for information. What I got was a chat with kind of the Forrest Gump of the global war on terror. He cites his early experiences with Islamic terrorists in the Philippines, Bosnia, North Africa, Mogadishu, Somalia, Afghanistan, Iraq, and probably a half a dozen other places he's not at liberty to name. We had a frank and personal discussion of PTSD and the universal advice he offers to anyone entering the clandestine service. Be humble and ask for help. Know yourself. Create strong cross-functional relationships. Solve problems at the lowest level. Nurture passion. Show appreciation. Begin transmission now. Yeah, I, I was up till 3.30 in the morning reading your book. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, wow. It's, it's bizarre that I, I can sit and meet somebody and I've read a book and I've read, you know, so much about your life. And now I'm just, it feels a little unfair is what I'm trying to say. I'm just meeting like, uh, hi, hi, Tom. I know, everything, <laughs> I know everything you're willing to say about yourself pretty much. And more um, than my family knows. Yeah. There's some interesting family members too. I want to talk about that. Um, Unknown. Yeah. I was interviewing some guys from, um, uh, it was recently declassified a few years ago, but it was called detachment a in Berlin. I don't know if you know those guys, but they were sort of a precursor for Delta Force, some of them ended up going on to Operation Eagle Claw. But I was interviewing them a few years ago, and one guy was talking about how they suspected that the jackal was in Berlin because you know the relations with East Germany and Berlin, and they were sort of chasing him through the streets. But apparently, he ended up in Khartoum. So, yeah, I doubt as a Greek merchant, as a Greek merchant, what was he selling? Like teacups? Oh, he was. He was just running around with a bodyguard, getting drunk. Right. Right. Yeah. He, was, he had uh, such a recognizable face, though. Did he do anything to change it? Or? He was, well, you know how we caught him. Uh, not to take away too much from Billy's book, but he, uh, yeah. Billy caught him coming out of a, a, lip, uh, a clinic who was going to go undergo liposuction. Oh, so he was going to change it up a little bit. Yeah. I bet he but was he, probably saying, I bet he was probably saying he was doing it for professional reasons, but, you know, he yeah. probably, he might have wanted to trim up a little bit, you know? Oh, yeah. He's yeah. very vain. Very vain guy. Yeah. Yeah. The jackal. Yeah, I wanted to sort of jump into things. At the end of your book, you talk a little bit about how you started meetings. And um, you usually started it by asking, what's the sort of immediate threat situation? So maybe wherever you are. So maybe you could let me know where you are and what's what's going on right now. Oh, I, I'm, I'm in Thailand right now. Uh, I'll be heading to the Philippines. I'm actually doing research for an article mm-hmm. on uh, Islamic terrorism down in the southern part of the Philippines. Mm-hmm. So I'm yeah, do you take any? Do you naturally take precautions when you're when you're oh. working in that sort of capacity as well from the old days? Uh, always, always. We um, one of the things that we really stressed in, in our organization, which I didn't realize how different it was from from many other organizations, is um, prevention mm-hmm. and avoidance. Now, in a, if you're trying to be clandestine, you can't be having to report crimes to law enforcement. So you have to try to avoid anything that would get entangle you with the local intelligence service, law enforcement, et cetera. So right. avoid crime, uh, any type of uh, official interaction when you're in a clandestine um, operating mode is a no-no. And um, being really aware of your surroundings, uh, as, as you can't operate um, if you're not. So everything we did was based on like a 90-10, which is 90% avoidance, 10% um, interaction. Right. And what I found is that the only time I've ever gotten in trouble was when I uh, broke those rules. So you got to pay. So, so like parking regulations, you got to pay attention to the parking signs. Little, little, you can't the break something. the law until you're ready to break the law. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then the other part is, is knowing what's going on. And if you start to see something kick off or, or, or some people start arguing very loudly in the place, you get out. And knowing where you are in a city, knowing where the where the hot spots are, the bad locations, knowing what what the threat uh, choke, choke points, yeah, 
and characteristics, you know, in certain areas, uh, you, uh, certain groups are, are more of a threat than others. Mm-hmm. And by understanding your environment right there, you can, you can do a lot of things to avoid. But if you don't understand your environment, you're kind of going in blind. So preparation is a huge part of it. So do you, I mean, when you're working as a writer or you're doing research, are you, do you still naturally give yourself a little bit of a cover story or do you feel able to just say exactly what it is you're doing? Oh, I'll tell you, it's, I've been uh, retired for, well, since 2013 and I still have a hard time saying that I'm uh, ex-CIA. I'll say, oh, I I work for the government. (laughs) I'll catch myself going, you know, I don't have to say that anymore. (laughs) And for for many years, I didn't didn't say that. I said I worked as a trainer or I was a civilian employee. And it bore them uh, into uh, going away. Yeah. I was say you're like the third, the third, you're the conditioning trainer for me. You can't just say you're Manny, Manny Pacquiao's trainer. So that's a little bit too high. Yeah. It's a little bit too high visibility, right? Mm-hmm. Let's see. Yeah. I wanted to ask, you know, in the beginning of your book, you talk about uh, Nick, Colonel Nick Rowe. Mm-hmm. And I, the book just started shaking in my hands because I, well, I was reading on a computer and a Kindle. I was <laughs> I didn't have time to get a copy of it, but um, that was probably one of my favorite books when I was in college. It was at West Point. I'm reading this five years to freedom. I'm thinking if you ever get caught, this is the one you're going to need. Oh uh, yeah. And uh, wow. What a, what a story. What a book. Um, I just remember him describing being in the, um, you know, being in the, in the, jungles and have, they're putting them outside in these bamboo cages and just having to scrape the mosquitoes off of him. And uh, it was just an amazing amount that that, that that man had gone through. And I thought to be able to start your book out like that structurally was, was really cool. Cause you thought, wow, here's a person who, you know, you, you, you think might kind of know some of these things or you think instinctively would, would have some control or, or some support, but it's not always the case. And how did you how did you find out about about uh, Nick Rowe? Well, it's it's funny. I, I was like the unofficial historian for our our unit because um, mm-hmm. I, I started out. In the, I was in the first training class, the official first training class. But prior to that, we had put people in, um, and it didn't work out real well. We we needed a group of security personnel to go provide support for that uh, for a chief station, and. Uh, so we just looked at our ranks and we go, okay, here's some former military guys. Here's some police uh, trained guys. Uh, we'll just get them to the range and we'll get them out there. Mm-hmm. And a number of teams out there and it didn't really work well. And so they did a, uh, a review and they say, eh, no, we need to really do this right. So they, they put together this first training class in 1991 and I was uh, uh, luckily able to get in. And from that moment on, the the unit was um, was operational, and we call it the cadre because it's, it wasn't a full time. As, as I collected more and more data about you know how things operated and how what well, a little bit happened before, I didn't even know the connection between Colonel Rowe and the unit till much later, till I started reading some uh, information from uh, a case officer that had been out there in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And, um, but all the other information, in fact, before I left, I, I did a data dump, uh, with, uh, with the POC, um, leadership and I, I'm a, I'm a bit of a pack rat. Uh, I collect mm-hmm. a lot of traffic and, um, and because I was in and out of the POC throughout my career and that I, I also, it was a member, then I was a senior team leader and then I, I ran POC elements in various countries as the head of security, I didn't, I, I wasn't involved in their day-to-day actions, but they are, they were keeping me briefed and I would direct them to different locations. And so uh, I got to see all the different levels. And right. um, so the POC, maybe could we just run back a little bit? Like POC is the protective operations cadre. Protective operations cadre. You're saying they really we love our alphabets. So it's alphabets. I had a list of them. I was writing them down. Protective operations cadre. And, um, but maybe we could just jump back to Colonel Rowe, for example. Was he a military attache at the time, or was he working yes. in some other capacity? He was a he was a, a defense attache. Defense working, attache. Yeah, defense attache is the military's diplomatic title. For right. example, uh, uh, FBI agents working in the embassy are called legats, l- legal attaches. Right. So we're talking about we're talking about Colonel Nick Rowe, and what year was it that he was? Um, 
more or less more or less assassinated by um by terrorists it was in 89 uh, or something yeah i think it was 89 yeah and, and, and just mag um joint i'm gonna go wrong on the title um but it's it's a military it's an organization we have just mags in different countries and that's uh, a liaison unit where the military works with the with the local uh, military to inc- upgrade their capacities, work on joint projects. So he was part of a very large element. Just Mag- you, you mentioned it was sort of like Mac Visag, similar to what he'd done. Well, um, in this case, it was more formalized because we had a relationship with the Filipinos go way back, and um, we had uh, two large, two large military bases that the U.S. ever had were in the Philippines, um, Clark Air Force Base and uh, Subic Bay Naval Yeah, I had no idea. I had no idea there was such an American presence there. I mean, you said it's one of the largest, it's one of the largest graveyards of American soldiers, 17,000 soldiers buried there. It's, um, it's super impressive. Uh, it's a beautiful um, uh, cemetery because it, it shows the real, uh, uh, the joint battle, the, the loss of life. Uh, mm-hmm. The Filipinos and Americans fighting side by side, and then laying in graves together. So, yeah, and it's it's beautiful. Um, they the way they maintain it, um, it's nice. Then it, you have the the Bataan Death March, which in the local vernacular is called Bataan mm-hmm. March. And then there's Camp O'Donnell, which is really now no longer in place, but that's where all the, uh, the Bataan Death March people went to, and that's where a lot of them died. Because they were, um, they were subjected to such cruel treatment and malnutrition that they yeah. developed diseases we'd never seen before. So I was just wondering. You you, met, you talk about the POC, and I was just wondering why Colonel Rowe wasn't the responsibility of the uh, diplomatic security service. I think that's what it is the DSS. Yeah. And maybe you could yeah. describe for me just quickly a difference between POC and DSS. I mean, you said the DSS is they're responsible for all. American civilians in, in another country under the auspices of the, the ambassador. But um, maybe you could explain the differences in those jobs. In, ge- in general, the, uh, the RSO, the regional security officer uh, of diplomatic security is the most senior security officer in country because he reports directly to the ambassador uh, through the president. And he's responsible for all U.S. citizens, uh, which is a huge responsibility in a country like that. But when you have other elements like the military, the military fall under their own auspices. We, um, as agency personnel working in different places, and I can't go into too much more detail about that. Mm-hmm. We sometimes we drift out out from under their auspices, and whenever possible, if we have our own security element, they're happy to relinquish their responsibility to us. Now that the flip side doesn't work, we don't normally with a few exceptions, provide any security for um, military or, or diplomats or anybody like that. We cover our own. And that's where, like, the 13-hour story, the Benghazi. Yeah. Um, those those um, contractors, and, and there was a staff officer, uh, were not responsible for the security at, at the uh, MC. Yeah, it was not. And they weren't staffed for it. And so it was a serious risk uh, making that move because they were they were not going to be protecting their own element, what they were responsible for, and went out and, and heroically saved the lives of, of those State Department employees. But inadvertently, they brought the bad guys back to the to the uh, CIA annex, and and then we lost some lives there. Yeah. And, but there's uh, some some very definite uh, distinctions in, t- in terms of responsibility and. Like diplomatic security will provide um, support for uh, VIPs and other um, senior government officials when they come to visit the country. But in the case of like uh, Vice President Cheney, uh, we had such a, a robust pr- presence in Baghdad, and we had a lot of uh, support elements, armored cars, really experienced um, POC guys. Um, they kind of asked us to, to lead lead that advance and really coordinate, which was um, actually a very smart move because I moved, I, I flew in and worked with the diplomatic security and the military, and we had a real nice team and mm-hmm. things went well. But uh, we work together, but we don't, um, there, there's not a lot of overlapping. We kind of keep things separate. 
Yeah. You've mentioned something about that I had, I mean, I'd heard of people building trust when you're, you know, working with an asset or trying to talk somebody into giving information from their country. But you mentioned how important it was to have trust, like on the same side with different, with different elements and being able to have like cell phone numbers of these people. And, uh, I guess, um, how do you, is there anything you do? How, how do you do that? How do you, how do you build trust with these other, with these other units that you're working with to make sure that you don't cross over or if you do, it's necessary. Well, um, First off, you try to reach out to your counterparts because there's, there's an automatic language uh, similarity and an understanding. So when I first went to uh, Iraq, I, I worked, I went right to the, directly to the, uh, the, the RSO, the regional security officer, very senior guy. I was lucky. He, had, he was a lot of experience in the war zones. He really got it. And uh, we, over many cups of coffee, he probed my thought process and uh, what, you know, what my, I thought my mission was and how I was going to work with his elements. And he, uh, luck, I, for luckily for me, he came to the decision that I could be trusted. And, and so we exchanged telephone numbers and, um, but he made it clear that uh, this was a tenuous trust and that if I violated anything, uh, I wouldn't get the support. And yeah. that's why one of the things that I used to tell the junior officers, I said, no matter what, you will get along with the RSO because right. they're a critical element and it will affect mission. Yeah. And uh, you, you really got to do that. And that, and that takes time. You have, you have to make an effort and because there's, um, there's rubs between the elements. Um, there's historical bad blood between certain elements <laughs> in the government. And so you have to get past that. Yeah. I imagine it would be a little bit complicated because the RSO or the DSS, they sort of fall under, under the, um, under the umbrella of the state department. Um, they probably don't get quite the funding that you guys get either. Uh, no, they don't. They, they're, they're, and they have a tough mission because they get put in situations like Benghazi where they ask for support and they don't get it. Right. And I wanted to ask you about that. You mentioned something in the book, you say, um, I mean, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I really, I really think that some there should have been some sort of response to, like, a request for for more security. But in fairness, was that going on in a lot of different places? Like people asking for more security in maybe you know a dozen other countries at the same time. I mean, that's kind of that's an argument you, you'll often hear. It's like, wait, there was, we're already stretched thin. How could we? How could we? Um, well, it's 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 less about that, and it's more about prioritization and political view right the state department is a very political animal and um if whenever we add more security it has two effects number one it automatically broadcasts that we don't trust the local because oh yeah by by rule of law um convention it is the host government's just uh responsibility to protect an embassy not that's why we only have a couple of marine security guards in these embassies They're, it's not to protect our people or the facility they only protect the classified that's all they're there for all right they're just there to burn stuff on the roof right correct that's yeah. it so when we start adding more security it it has a ripple effect the second part of that is is the politics part of it where now that starts to affect their relationships in terms of diplomatic um activities and the the diplomats that run state department, and I'm probably going to step on my toes here, but that's okay. Go for uh, it. <laughs> yeah. They're, uh, they're not, they're not um, pro security. They're not, they, they kind of have rose colored glasses. And um, this situation like Benghazi has happened many, many times in many, many places, but they've gotten lucky in this case they didn't. And I've seen it all over the world. Um, and it's it's an unfortunate part of, is there, uh, of is the there, business. But, it, but is there sort of a brinksmanship that you find among um, the diplomatic corps where they don't want to act like they're afraid, almost to the point where it's kind of foolhardy? You decided you described this one story where in Iraq, I think it was the ambassador was getting into a car, and you called you you'd heard about some IEDs that were being in place, and you called the security guy just in time. Um, he seemed pretty impatient, like he didn't want to wait. He's like, if you're wrong, you're fired. I think. Yeah. 
Yeah, that friend of mine, and and actually he's still in in very um, uh, close contact with that ambassador. But yeah. yes, there is a there is a level to that. I mean, um, uh, I think I, I mentioned that I have a call sign in my uh, that I went by in Iraq that people didn't understand what it was. It was Slinger. Mm-hmm. They just would look at me like what, and they didn't understand that it was it was an inside joke because. Uh, somebody in a position that should have been a, pro- a proponent for armed protection wasn't, and he called us a bunch of gunslingers. All and, right. Yeah. Okay. So uh, that, that one kind of teed me off. So I said, okay. So slinger it is. Uh, knuckle draggers, gunslingers, gun toters. I kind of like yeah. slinger. It's kind of like clinger, but yeah. you know, it doesn't quite go all the way there. <laughs> I don't yeah. think I've ever heard the nickname Slinger before. It's kind of good. Yeah. Well, I had to ch- I had to adjust because because my other call signs that I'd used uh, um, were taken, and that's one of the uh, interesting things about the war zones. People remember each other by more by their call signs than their real names. So, oh, so somebody had all your taken your call call yeah, sign. My original call sign. Uh, Did the from, cool ones go uh, away? The cool ones go away. Oh, cool ones go cool. Viper. Yeah. Viper, no. <laughs> fighter, they're all gone. <laughs> they're all gone. Snake. See, I, when I was in cartoon, I was working with Cobra Black, and I, I go by Cobra. Sure, yeah. One of our clients before that. Uh, and he said one time, he said, I don't know, we, we can't have Cobra on the net because that sounds too much like Cobra. Yeah. So he said, how about Snake? And I, oh, I, I think of his uh, Kurt Russell and Snake Plissken from uh, Escape from New York. It's oh, I like that. So I was Snake, but then when I went to Iraq, somebody had Snake Eyes. So I went with oh, Slinger. They took it. Yeah, Snake Eyes is a bit much, though. I mean, come on, yeah. you're well, you're not, not getting too particular about it. Yeah. Oh, people would pick out some stuff that was just uh, was just wrong, just wrong. <laughs> and we give him a second chance, and then it, one guy he just he just couldn't get it together, so we ended up calling him. Um, Fuzzy Bunny. Yeah. And he was a pop guy. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> that never, he never lived that one down. I think my call sign, I'd want to have dirty. Ah, oh, one of the guys that worked for me was dirty. Just dirty? Yeah, I kind of like that. Just dirty, dirty bird. Dirty bird? <laughs> I you mentioned that. Oh, I looked at, so you, you're, I'm only on the first page of questions here, so we're moving right along, obviously. I want to talk to you about stealth mode and kind of the principles of that. And you said, I mean, some guys you would bring in obviously contractors from various companies and they were exper- They had different, a different experience. Maybe they were in one of these special operations forces, but um, I just want to talk about stealth mode, maybe the mindset that it takes to shift into that. And maybe if there's anything in that training, but I did want to mention, I read you've been to Nairobi and I was there recently and uh, the Florida 2000 was closed this year. Ah. It burned down. I remember seeing that. I remember driving by. There's this big round. It looked like a big, uh, I don't know what you would call it, like a carousel or something. It's like stuck out into the street, right? Yeah. <laughs> what a place. Yeah. The Florida. There's a couple places around the world that are just known for like a, like that Star Wars bar scene in the first yeah. Star Wars movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Florida 2000 was one of them. Tanimore in, um, down in, uh, Jakarta is another one, but, um, but as you talk about stealth mode, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, it's a mindset. It's it's the difference between a protector and, um, uh, a a cop or, or a a SWAT guy that they run towards danger. Um, in this case, your first move is to get your protectee out of danger and you're going to rely as much upon being low profile as your armament. In fact, you're, you're, you're going to be outnumbered. You're going to be outgunned. So you're always operating on the idea of, you know, where's my out? Um, the secret services has almost never drawn their weapons, much less fired around. And that's because they're concentrating on getting their protectee out. So some of the, some of the, the military members we would get, ex-military, would come in. They would have to change their mindset. Instead of running towards danger, you're, you're going to run away. You're going to be thinking about escape. Mm-hmm. And instead of kind of using um, deterrence, 
as a method, you're, you're using um, invisibility. And I'll tell you, uh, the numbers are, are in on how effective this is. Uh, we've been operating since 1990 in all the worst places, and we operated clandestinely up and only until recently did, did our activities really come out. Um, and doing our primary mission, we've only lost one uh, POC member, and we've never lost a protectee. Now, that's doing the primary mission, which is mobile security protective operations. Now, when we, we get stuck into the role of static security, which is not our primary, mm-hmm. we have lost some people. We've lost some people in coast. We lost some people in Benghazi. Um, but that's a different animal. Yeah, it's different. That's a record, considering some of the areas we worked, which were incredibly hostile. And during the times when GPS were just three little letters in the alphabet, there was no such thing as a GPS uh, global positioning satellite system for us to rely on. We had the old-fashioned maps, and there was no uh, QRF, quick reaction force. We were, we were own, you, you got yourself out of trouble or you didn't. I was stationed in Berlin just before the, the wall came down. And we, I did an exchange with a French unit, and they had this 30-day commando training. And I was an engineer. I used to build things and blow them up. But I thought, this is going to be cool. I want to do this. So I did an exchange with them for a month. And the French, I mean, over the past 40 years, they didn't really, they didn't really have an overwhelming force. They, they're never known for having this huge conventional force. So they were training these guys to be able to fight um, outnumbered and sort of, you know, behind the lines and so forth. And um, I just remember it was just so hard to get used to because we, you know, as Americans, you're so used to kind of moving in force and, you know, anyway, but, um, uh, you know, moving in, you know, with conventional units and so forth. There's the French. We, they train so that if at night you slept with your running, your shoes on, your running shoes, right? And <laughs> you slept, you slept so that if you heard a sound, you could like pull a string, your, your lean to would come down, wrap everything in, stuff it in your bag that within 30 seconds you were running like down, down this trail. And it was, it was so hard for, like, like American soldiers to get used to that, like, wait, danger, I got to run, you know, yeah. I want to, it was a little bit, I picked it up pretty quickly. I had no problem with it. Fight <laughs> uh, another day. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like I'm out of here, but I think, well, what, what does the stealth do like in, in the, in the enemy or in the opposing force? I mean, it, what, what does it create for them as an experience? Well, the, uh, I'll give you an example. Like um, in Iraq, uh, State Department and other uh, uh, military convoys would be very big, very uh, a lot more emphasis on deterrence. So they'd be running around with with big suburbans or Tahoes or um, um, and sometimes lights and multi you know five car motorcade. So you can't miss them. Mm-hmm. So there's that element, and then you've got this element of two sedans driving down the road. They're not quite that close. So they may not look like they're together. And they're on the dirty side, and there's kind of nothing that stands out. And so the bad guys, if, if they see them at all, they'll just go, hmm, what was that as, it, as we drove by? And then they'd see the State Department detail and go, oh, let's get these guys. <laughs> so an attack they would. Yeah. But no, here's the downside of stealth. Uh, my biggest problem in my year in Iraq was, uh, blue on blue, the military shooting up our vehicles. I think it just happened in Afghanistan yesterday. Yeah. It's a, it's some, it's some sad. Now, we, we were lucky that we were using some of the best armor ever at the time. And that gave us the edge, uh, in those encounters Our, and a lot of people think, Oh, you know, was, these cars are armored. They can do anything they want. No, you, you've got a couple of seconds before they'll start punching through the armor. Right. Um, so it's just to give you time to get off the X. And if you try to stop and fight, it's a bad day. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned get. I hear. I hear that term a lot. Get off. Get off the X. Yeah. And um, my thought it about- really well into uh, personal safety. It it really does. Uh, uh, to give you the, the, the real technical um, deep stuff that we learned was uh, whenever you felt like you were near or on the area that the bad guy was concentrating his firepower. Now that could be uh, weapons. It could be just people. 
you know, they're, they're um, the technical term we use for getting out of that situation is move. That's a, that's right. it. I mean, reduce down to its barest level, move. A moving target is a lot harder to hit. And mm-hmm. if you think about it in terms of a fight situation, just physical confrontation. If you're, uh, if you're on your bike and you're getting, and you're going, you're running, it's very hard to, to pin you down. Yeah. That's a yeah, there's, there's, you feel safer when you're moving too. It gives you something to do. Yeah. <laughs> like Put all use. Well, it's part of our three, uh, our three modes against uh, danger, right? Freeze, uh, flight, and fight. Known as fight is last. Freeze is a natural uh, part of our, our, our instinctual reactions because uh, so many of our, the predators back in the day were, were visual and mo- uh, movement sensitive. Mm-hmm. But freeze doesn't work real well under, when you're on the X. <laughs> I imagine freeze could work good if you're in stealth. I mean, if you just sort of, like there's kind of an unnatural, it's almost unnatural to not move at all sometimes. You know? Oh, yeah. I mean, you it, can, one of the theories behind action. that is if you, if you go to a mall, and you're walking around, and um, if you want to get out of sight, just sit down. Just the, just the act of sitting down and being at that lower level and not moving, you, you go almost invisible. We do a lot of uh, basic surveillance training in malls because you can do all kinds of interesting things there. And it, it really pops out when wow. people are trying to be stealthy and they don't blend. Because I've talked to people who um, – in wheelchair, disabled people in wheelchairs. And they talk about how um, they are invisible. Even in conversation with a group of people, they say at a certain point, at some point they become, they feel like they're invisible. So I'm usually a little sensitive about that when I see someone like in a wheelchair and sense at that point where like, Oh my God, I'm completely ignoring this person because they're not in this, this arena that I'm, that I'm looking at right now. Any other, any other of those counterintuitive things that, you could share about about stealth or being noticed or well one of the things that humans we've done in only in the later part of our existence is we've we've ignored we started to ignore our, our instincts uh gavin de becker wrote a great book called the gift of fear mm-hmm. and um, our instincts are dead on and uh it's because the ones that didn't have the instincts didn't move on <laughs> they got eaten and we we have all these instincts that we don't like. We don't like to believe that we're humans. We don't have instincts. We're, we're we're ruled by our intellect, and that's not the case. There's a there's a lot of instinctual data um, hardwired in our system. So, in so many cases, after a bad situation has happened, you've interviewed somebody, say, "Well, I, I kind of knew something was wrong." Okay, well, maybe you should have listened to that. So, the idea that you are open open to listening to your own uh, instincts and that if there's something that you feel is off, it probably is. And you need to take, take that as a reason to, to get out of the area. And if you're wrong, well, guess what? You just, you left an area prematurely. If you're, if you're right and you got out of there, you really avoided something. Yeah. And we give off signals. It's amazing. Uh, uh, one story I was, I was told by a guy, uh, was about, how people say, well, my dog's really smart. Really? <laughs> yeah. This guy came to the door and um, he came in and he was, uh, he said he was a repair guy and um, my dog started getting real antsy. And um, so I got, got the guy out and um, turned out later on that they found out this, there was a guy targeting the neighborhood. He was a serial, serial rapist. And she said, well, you know, that my dog was, was picking up on this guy's signals. And, and that's when we realized, no, he was picking up on your signals. He doesn't know that guy from Adam. He's not looking at the guy going, wow, I got all the police reports and this serial rapist looks like wow. this. Yeah. No, he's reading you because he knows you. And I mean, he knows all of a sudden. Different. Yeah. Your, 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 your instincts are kicking in and you're leaking data. Uh, your, your, your body is leaking information you know, uh, fear and your dog picked up on it. Do you find that, um, I had another question about, maybe you think about that. You, you mentioned something about in your book, like you, you had a loss in your book and you mentioned, I, I didn't want to really think about that. I didn't want to open up the vault, which I think you yeah. meant open, open yourself up emotionally and go into that. So I'm just wondering, is there, is there a, is there a similar, um, 
Is there sort of a paradox in being um, compartmentalizing and sort of shutting off certain things emotionally while still being open to these sort of instincts that you're talking about? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we used to do when we started really getting into the war zones a lot, we had to start to work with our people, getting them ready for these um, deployments to right. Iraq for right. Europe, or Afghanistan. And a lot of these people are not, they're not um, security, they're, they're maybe logistics or, uh, or HR. Or, so they're not really used to that environment. And, but one of the things we found we really needed to do is, was get their family members trained. So we'd have family members come in and we talked to them about uh, how to help their spouses uh, when they're on deployment by compartmenting what you tell them. If, if they don't need to know that the, that the hot water heater went, don't tell them. Tell them when they get back. Because if you give them too much data and they start, it starts to go through their head, when they're supposed to be doing their job, you're putting them at risk. Because they're going to have an errant thought. They're going to daydream for a second when they should be aware of their surroundings. And it's right. going to cost them. And that's where, um, you know, family members are, uh, especially uh, family members of soldiers and uh, other people who are habitually in, in dangerous places. They have to learn to uh, help their spouses with uh, keeping focused. Because mm-hmm. it is very easy to get distracted. So there is, there is a, there is a, there is a bandwidth that you can't take in everything. Nope. No. And then, and complacency is the biggest killer. When you, when you're in a place long enough, all of a sudden it's not so dangerous anymore because you're used to it. And that is something you have to continuously fight on long deployments. Now, the other side of that is hypervigilance. That's where you get to the point where everything is a threat. And that is something that comes back with you sometimes. And I, I, when I came back from Iraq um, and I was living in the States doing domestic assignment for the National Reconnaissance Office, I found that I had to, I had to fight that. I had to deliberately work to get the hypervigilance uh, under control. Mm-hmm. Did you go on walks in the park or sit with your back to the door? I mean, was there anything uh, you just did yes, to balance actually, yourself? Or? Funny you mentioned that. Uh, I would sometimes deliberately. Yeah. do some things to, to say, okay, it's time to, to let the guard down. Some of it would be just talking to strangers. Oh, wow. Yeah. In a restaurant or bar situation, something that is very much not my nature. Um, uh, and, and that helped because, because now you're, I'm forcing myself to interact with people and um, you, you can't have that, that predatory resistance when you're sitting there talking to some stranger, he's going to ask you a question. You're going to have to figure out how to answer it. And um, especially in, a, in such a closed environment, I, when you work at the agency, especially when you've been um, they see undercover for 23 out of 24 years, you don't tell people what you do and you don't talk about certain things. And you, uh, how do you explain your deployments, you know, six weeks out, two weeks back, six weeks out, two weeks back. It, it become uh, the lying part becomes a real drag. Yeah, it takes a toll. I mean, it must be frustrating because I mean, I, I read your book. <laughs> I mean, you must on, on the outside, you look like oh, he's, he's kind of a player, right? Or <laughs> he's he's super mysterious. I don't really know what to make of this guy, but you're just doing your duty. Yeah. So I just want to remind everybody. I'm talking with Tom Pecora. He is the author of a fantastic new book called Guardian, and um. Yeah, we've got some a little more time left, and uh, I, I, one quick one though. You, you mentioned your grandmother survived the Titanic. Yes, she was one of the last living survivors. She and my great grandfather and my great grandmother were the only intact family to survive um, steerage, third class. And well, the amazing story is that he was on one side of the boat and the ladies were in the other. And he made it over to them and then got them out on one of the early lifeboats. And um, uh, the, the rest of the family, the great aunt, great uncle, they, they perished. Mm-hmm. Uh, God, yeah. what a story. Long line of survivors. <laughs> wow. So they were down, they were down in the, they were down in the lower decks dancing with the Irish, the Irish people. Yes. Actually the, when Leonardo DiCaprio dances with the little girl, 
I have a picture of my grandmother from back when she was on the boat, and it looks just like her. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. What a what a family. Mm-hmm. I wanted to um. Yeah, I think you guys overdid it with the rat, but <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty funny. Yeah. But it's one of those well, it's one of those stories where you're in a situation. I mean, you're you were in. I think I can say it. you're in Somalia, and um, you know shells are being lobbed over at you, and you don't know who's shooting at you, and then you see this rat. Did, were you aware of that yourselves? Like this was sort of a, a metaphor for something that you wanted to. Not at the time. It was, it, and I'll tell you, we were scared. We were scared of that rat. But we didn't know what diseases it had. I think we were more afraid of that rat than we were of the Somali. And because that rat would run across you when you're sitting there watching TV. Um, there were some creepy crawlers. I think you're projecting. I think you're projecting an awful lot onto that rat. And I think, and I think he, bore, he, he paid the price. He paid the ultimate price for that. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that was that was uh, that was a harrowing story of getting getting out of that um, getting out of the ambush. I mean, you, the way you describe it, I mean, I can just you can just see down the hill with the truck pulling in front of the road and the ambush beginning, and um, your U-turn and getting out of there. That was uh, it, it was a thrilling read, but it it must have it, it must have been a defining moment in your life. Absolutely, that's. Uh... That's where uh, I guess you could say I, I touched the live wire of uh, life and death. Uh, there was a moment where where it hit me that boy, this is not good. This is we're probably not going to make it out of this one. Mm-hmm. And you and just, that's a, I'm sorry. Go ahead. This is it. Just it, it hits you with a oh shit. But you seem to put that aside. I mean, you're even when you went back and like as you're writing this book, did it, did it come back to you the 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 symptoms that you really clearly sort of laid out from, you know, a traumatic situation like that, the auditory exclusion, the tunnel vision, I think the tacky effect. You said you didn't hear the gunshots. You just heard them going through the door. Yeah. Very strange. Yeah. There was, uh, it was, it was interesting, you know, stepping back and if you were like watching, if I was watching myself, it was interesting to see how, how that all played out. Mm -hmm. And, I, I was got very involved in, in working with people trying to prevent um, people going down that path, uh, PTSD symptoms and, and things, because uh, in a lot of those war zones, it, it would creep up on them. And we would have to be watching for signs. It's time for you to go on vacation now. You've been here too long. Um, and so I got to learn a lot about the symptoms and a lot about the, the correct or the more effective treatments um, for people who go through something traumatic. Things that we didn't have back then. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we were lucky enough to have 11 days where we just sat and didn't do any land movements where we could talk about what happened and kind of um, hot wash it and decide, you know, okay, we did the right thing here. We could have done better there. Um, so that was helpful. Um, but it's one of the things that became very important to me later on training the younger people were to help them understand that this, there's a risk when you go into this business. And that you have to be ready for some of the the effects. Um, yeah. The guy that replaced me in in when I was out in um, in the Afghan Pakistan region, he had to uh, go into the Marriott Hotel and retrieve a body that was um, in the tub, and he was uh, he was burnt to a cinder, and wow. he just don't never the same after that. So yeah. that's you know you don't think about that until it happens. Yeah. <laughs> so, not to go too dark on you there mark but uh that's, that's I, yeah, I, 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 we could spend a whole episode talking about that i mean it's um I mean, it's a very real issue you know and you know there's still there's still a stigma but there's also you know people are talking about it the more open about it now um and uh it's a it's a real thing i mean i think i was re- i was fascinated by it I was reading one of David Grossman's books. I was talking about this all the time. And he was saying, yeah, you know, tra- traumatic things happen to people. They're in car accidents and different things happen. But the moment when you realize someone from your same species is trying to shoot at you, mm. a certain, it gets at you in a certain spot. And I, um, I just want to know what your thoughts were on that. Yeah. It's the, the closest I've come to kind of figuring this out mm-hmm. is – how, you know, some people like to jump out of planes and do bungee jumping and things like that. And what I, 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 I look at that as they want to go real close to the live wire, but not quite touch it. 
They want to feel a little bit of electricity, but they don't want to grab it. Okay. And they all know in the back of their head that they're going to survive the parachute jump and they're going to survive the bungee jump. So it's a flirtatious moment with life threatening events. Right. But when you're in one where there, there is no referee, there is, there's no, in the back of your head, you're going to get out of this. That changes the whole event. And you're right. Um, when, uh, what did Winston Churchill say? There's nothing more exhilarating than to be shot at and missed. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get away with, I'll get away with not, not having that happen to me. I'll be fine. Uh, yeah. I wanted to ask uh, you something else on page 173. You're wearing a fanny pack. I was just wondering if that was like part of your official, <laughs> Was this part of your official <laughs> issue, or was this something you voluntarily uh, I was hiding something in there. <laughs> okay, that explains. Yeah, fanny pack now be, you know, screams gun. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's like a it's an unobtrusive holster, right? Like a yes. tourist a tourist holster. Exactly, but oh, back then it was I was able to do stuff, and it was um, it was a lot more convenient because of a lot of the different things I was doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was able to take it off, put it on. Um, but I mean, it's it, it is for, to security other security people. It screams gun. For me, it just screamed eighties. But I don't. Know. <laughs> <laughs> that was, well, that was the nineties. But yeah. I guess in the nineties, part of the nineties. Yeah, but we, we do certain things that we we wear certain things that um, that are, are are not fashionable. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, it's funny to see notice those things though. Yeah. So, what's been the response to the book so far? I mean, you had some advanced praise, which is wonderful. I saw that. What's been some of the response to the book and what, are, what questions do people seem to be asking you? Uh, one response that I, I wrote this book for three different audiences. Um, and that's kind of a tough juggle. I, I wrote, I wrote it for people in my profession and my background. Um, so that I couldn't go too simplistic. Right. Uh, and I wanted to give to, to kind of reiterate the principles that, that really worked. So it, it got a little technical um, it might come across a little bit like a, like a, like a manual. Um, but it's, I want people to understand how protection really works, what the principles are, cause they're, they're across the board, whether you're doing low, pro, low profile war zone or secret service. Right. So that was one group. The second group was the people who were historians and really got in, wanted to know what it was like working under that kind of terrorist evolution, because I was kind of like the forced gump in security, uh, my friends used to laugh, you know, every time there's an event, you're there. Um, and, you know, the evolution of, of terrorism, especially with bin Laden, he and I kind of dance the same uh, tunes in the same lands often. And then the third group was um, people who, who didn't have any background in any of this stuff and, and just might want to read something a little different and um, more of a good news story about, about people who are out doing stuff to protect them that they don't hear about in places 365 days a year. We're working in places that military doesn't even go. And uh, we can't tell our story and our families don't even know. Do you know what, what was the situation in And I think it was in Lahore with that guy that got, I think he shot someone coming up on him in a car. Ray Davis. Yeah. 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 Can you talk about that or no? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ray Davis. That that was probably the first inkling that it ever ever came out that we were doing that kind of work. Now, the politics in 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 Pakistan are horrible, and he got he got stuck between two opposing forces. Normally, we would have been able to get a guy like that out. He was we weren't able to do that not not quickly, and uh, but he was defending himself. Uh, the two guys that went after him were thieves. And, um, but he made a tactical area and didn't get out of the area, area quick enough. He didn't and get so off got, the X. Yeah. He didn't get off the X. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, that was, um, you know, they, they, they tried to spin it in all kinds of great conspiracy theory stuff, you know, but, yeah. uh, he, but when you look through what happened, I mean, the guy reached, I think somebody reached in for him and you know, your training. Well, he got off a motorcycle. Uh, the motorcycles are, are used all over the world for, for robberies and assassinations. And it, it works extremely well in bad traffic locations right. like Manila or, or in Pakistan. So his traffic so, were up anyway. Oh, yeah. When he saw these guys, this guy comes off, pulls his gun. He basically fired to the windshield. 
and and didn't wait for. I mean, when a guy pulls a gun and starts walking towards your car, pretty sure you know what's going on. Yeah, because that was the first time I I really thought, oh wow, we do have some people over there protecting the people that are over there. Yeah, <laughs> doing, <laughs> like, yeah, that are doing things that we don't really know. I mean, he didn't really seem like a James Bond sort of character, so you thought, well, maybe he's. I think he's working with some other people, you know, but I, I guess my, my thought was I, your, your job was, you know, um, you know, protect, protecting, um, clandestine, clandestine operation security. And, um, so how do you, I mean, this is kind of probably a broad question as we're getting close to the end, but how do you provide security for, someone who's going to meet an asset or going to, you know, uh, talk to one of his sources without looking like mom dropping him off at soccer practice. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a common, you've got to understand uh, the, the principles behind a, a couple of different things. One, you have to understand the protection principles so that you can actually be effective, but you have to also understand the environment well enough that you adapt so that you don't show up with sunglasses on, open the car door, and, and you know, everybody knows you're there. Um, you also have to know the threat and understand the characteristics there so that you're uh, ahead of the curve if something does start to happen. So you, you've got to have – you kind of have to master a bunch of different skills. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not, um, uh, it's not e- an easy game. It, it's, it's, it, it adapts, or you have to adapt. Because things change. All of a sudden, a country that didn't have suicide bombers, now you do, or vehicle attacks. Um, so it is, it, it, it's, it takes a different breed of cat mindset-wise. Yeah. Um, plus, it, it, you have to kind of be able to blend in. One of the things that they, they kind of dinged me when during my training was I had a tendency to have my head on a swivel. And that just screams uh, either bad guy or good guy. But you, you're not supposed to be either of them. Mm-hmm. So I had to learn to keep my head locked in and I had to learn to dress more local and behave more local so that I would just blend right into the work. So maybe you could, along those lines, maybe you could tell me why these guys from the the GRU are getting caught all the time. Uh, uh, <clears throat> part of it is um, the, you're talking about the, the, the ones in DC the script, and the uh, scripple case and the ones in <laughs> yeah. I don't know what the ones. Uh, well, are. First of all, oh, they're, just they're being careful. They're poor being lax, or they're just not trained, or what's going on? Poor, poor tradecraft. I mean, yeah, the the but but I have to give them this. Um, there was a an, a a killing of an individual assassination in um in the UAE uh, done by an Israeli team, and or allegedly, and uh, they did a really good job with their tradecraft, but they did what they didn't fully comprehend was the uh, the level of, of surveillance equipment that was in place. And when some trained people put all these camera feeds together uh, with a trained eye, they, the, the team disappeared, you know, and it's the same thing with these guys. I think they were, they were sloppy on their tradecraft, but I, I also think that they're, uh, it's becoming very much more difficult to operate in this world. Uh, I mean, biometrics, you go to you know, fingerprint scanners, iris scanners, um, facial recognition stuff. Back in the day, it was so much easier to just change a passport with a photo and you're going through the airport. Now, if they're doing a fingerprint scan, you're not going to match. So it's, yeah. it is much more difficult. Technology wow. is starting to creep into our tradecraft. It'd be a hard business with all the surveillance cameras they have everywhere. I mean, oh, yeah. yeah, you can just think think the most, most in the world, I think. They're just, especially in London. Yeah. Good question. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I guess I want to, there's some questions I have to ask just because, okay. just because, uh, I mean, I'm just starting this as a, as a podcaster, but I'm starting to feel like the pressure of being somewhat of a journalist too. I'm like, <laughs> you, you recommend, sure. you recommend a book by, uh, uh, Jose, was it, did you go by Jose Rodriguez? Jose Rodriguez. Yes. Former chief of the CTC. Did you work for him? Did you Yes. You work for him? Um, you mentioned in his book, Hard Measures, and you, you, you seem to give it a real strong, um, um, yeah, like a, you know, like, like a thumbs up. But in this book, he, he talked about, he said that the, um, the, the enhanced interrogations, the rendition, that that 
actually worked. I mean, you know, I've read some reviews that was maybe 30, 30 people all together over a period of a couple of months, but I was just wondering what your, maybe what your exposure to that was, which you probably can't say. Anyway, I'll stop talking while you start talking. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you can uh, say. First of all, uh, uh, that book was amazing because I never in a million years would have thought that they would have allowed him to talk about that at the level he did. Mm-hmm. Um, here's a guy who, who really was credible. Everybody who worked for him, everybody who knew him, knew he was, he was a solid guy. And, or he is a solid guy. Um, he's still and um, there's, this was a big political football. But, you know, it's, it's funny. If you look at any TV show about cops that goes way back, um, cops did en- enhanced interrogation uh, all the time. <laughs> and if, if it wasn't effective, I don't think they'd be doing it. All those years. Well, I think so, it was effective on television. I don't know how effective it was. Drama. I mean, there's enhanced interrogation is just things that make people uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, anything from sitting in a room for for three hours, we're just waiting. That's yeah. pretty uncomfortable. Um, so there's a there are a variety of things that they did. Um, the other part is people. People will uh, talk at a certain point. And um, the idea that, that it wasn't that effective, it doesn't, that's more of a political narrative. Um, there, I mean, the, the fact that we got bin Laden, it was based upon a lot of information that was collected and a whole bunch of it came from that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to get you know, into too much of the politics on what, what, what is allowable, what's not. And, uh, I will say I'm a, I'm a security guy and I, I'm a rule follower. And um, those rules were put in place. They were approved. Now they're no longer approved. I understand that process too. Um, mm-hmm. And we've de- made decisions that maybe we were not going to do that type of activity again. Um, uh, but we, we can't forget the kind of pressure that those people were under at that moment. We had just had a 9-11 situation. It was unprecedented. We were, in a, we were under attack. And these are people in the field working who may have stumbled across somebody who has the information that's going to stop another 3,000 deaths. Yeah. That's a lot of weight. The average person doesn't think about that. But when you, when you carry that kind of responsibility in the palm of your hand, uh, it changes you. Yeah. I thought the movie Zero Dark Thirty did a good job of covering that kind of ambiguity. You know, yes. it was something we couldn't really judge at the time. But um, incidentally, I was in that movie. I was the I was the pilot who gave her a, who gave her a ride home at the end. <laughs> Outstanding. Yeah, there you go. So that oh, was you, you that was my ride home. <laughs> I did. I did. I well, I start. I start. <laughs> I, I first auditioned. And they, I was going to be a Navy SEAL. So I said, "All right, good." So I showed up, and I got there, and they said, "Well, um, we got enough SEALs, as it turns out." for the team. So can you be one of the, the night stalker, the, the helicopter pilots? Oh, yeah. I was like, all right, just as cool. You know, I can not, I don't want to be on the one that crashes, but I can, I can do that. <laughs> <you know? Yeah. laughs> and then it, um, then it said, well, it turns out we're not really going to shoot that. So, but she's going to need a ride home on a C-130. Can you fly a C-130? I was like, well, I'll, I can't fly it. Obviously I didn't have to, but that was my part. Uh-huh. Of the but it was interesting being in, um, Jordan at that time, that was 2012, I think. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, they just let us walk around. I mean, we just walked around Amman, Jordan. They probably had one of the nicest oh. Starbucks that I've ever been to, you know? Great place. <laughs> you were never there. I was never there. <laughs> no, I, uh, actually, most of the people that I know, uh, you know, my, my colleagues really liked that, the, the movie because it was, uh, you know, it was, it was the, the GWAT, the Global War on Terror. And it, it put enough of the pieces together in a short span because it's hard, it's hard for the general public to see, to connect all these dots because it's, it took place over so much time. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot that showed the, the, the collaborative effort that was uh, made to, to get to that point. Yeah. And I mean, it was much more of a team effort than, you know, the three characters that they could afford to cast yes. in, in the movie. But um, yeah, it was, it was interesting. Um, 
what else I want to ask? Oh yeah, you were in weapons of mass destruction. Did you see any? Yes. Did you find any? Well, yes. <laughs> you did? Yes. yes. There's no doubt. Uh, if you if you if you did a review of the um, the news reporting over a period of 2003 to 2006 you're going to see blips of reporting of caches of uh wmd in iraq um which led us to believe that there's he he probably destroyed most of it and it probably happened when his the head of his wmd program defected to Jordan. Uh, I mean, the, the logical conclusion at that point would be, okay, you're just say your son, Hussein, your nephew or son-in-law uh, knows all where all the bodies are buried. He's now defected. What are you going to do? We're going to dig him up and bury him somewhere else. Yeah. Or destroy him, which right. he mostly did. And, yeah. But we didn't know that. So, you know, that, you know, that's my educated guess. I didn't work that program. I, I'm a support, a peripherally supporter because I was head of security for all the operations and almost every operation in Iraq involves security. So, um, but yeah, there was definitely, and, and, I, and that's why I allude to the uh, open source reporting. There's plenty of open source reporting, but the Brits have found a cache of, of uh, chemical uh, weapons, uh, missiles, mm-hmm. um, rounds, things like that. Mm-hmm. So the idea we didn't find any is doesn't, doesn't match that open source reporting. And I think, well, Colin Powell must have also been privy to that information about the um, Iraqi operatives who were in the Philippines. I think you mentioned that earlier on mm-hmm. in your book. Yeah. Um, I was surprised to see that they'd, they'd gone that far. Yeah. Scary. Scary yeah. stuff. Because we we've got such a, um, a big American population there. Uh, and that's one of the things that's, that's, uh, continues to plague, uh, Southeast Asia is, uh, is these terrorist groups that are uh, like right now, the ISIL is, or ISI, um, is down trying to infiltrate their way into the Philippines through, uh, Indonesia and just causing more problems. And, uh, the, uh, so who else is active? There's AGS. Are they still there? Or JI or any of these groups? AI is still active. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. but uh, the Philippines have had. A, a number of, of bad elements. Abu Sayyaf group. Uh, they were famous for for kidnapping the Burnhams. Um, that was a, a missionary couple. Mm-hmm. Back when I was there in two thousand one, two thousand four, and uh, yeah, there's there, it's very active. Uh, Islamic fundamentalist behavior in that area has been going on for a long, long time. Just like in the southern Thailand area, people don't know about it, but it's at one point it was the third largest uh, number of uh, improvised explosive devices in the world going off in southern Thailand. So yeah. you mentioned something. It's, I always hear this phrase, and it it, it always um, you say people, new people starting out. You say some of the newer generation are coming in. They can't they can't look things up and find things out from their peers. Um, there is sort of a, I mean, there's sort of a, is there like a bias now where we feel like everything, if we can't find it, it doesn't exist. Cause you said there are things, what you need to know, you need to know, oh, what was it there? <laughs> there are things that you don't, you need to know what you don't know. Yes. Yeah. There, and what I, things you're unable I came, to know. Yeah. There, when I came up to the ranks, I had mentors, not in the formal sense we use now, but I had mentors in every unit that I worked in, people who come out who, who would help me and guide me. Um, and so I, 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 I sought those type of people. I, I found them everywhere I went. The younger generation don't seem to be, they, they seem to have a problem with asking for help. They seem to have a problem with uh, utilizing the resources that are available, like some of the gray haired dudes and ladies. Um, and I think they're missing out on huge um, experience and knowledge and shortcuts. I mean, you know, don't learn the hard way. Learn from my mistakes. Um, I think they're, they're missing some of it. And part of it is they've had, they have so much information at their fingertips that, that we didn't have. I mean, I grew up on the World Book Encyclopedia when, you know, back in the uh, 1970, they had colored pictures. Oh, my God. Remember, you know? we had a, I used to have a favorite letter. 
right? <laughs> Did you read through it? I'm going to read the LMN. For some reason, yeah. they were all the same volume, right? Yep. Yeah. But it's, it, it's that mentality. Um, some things take time to learn. You have to, and you have to experience it. And um, that's a little harder when you think that you can't, you can't Google that. Can I quote you on that? Yeah, sure. You can't Google that. <laughs> yeah, certain things you just can't. <laughs> Read Tom Pecora's book, Guardian. You can't Google that. I mean, you can Google to find out where to buy it, but you can't Google what's in it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take that. Yeah, that's awesome. Anything else you wanted to say? Wanted to throw in? I want people to know about Oh, the Guardian has a Facebook website. I do uh, every two weeks. I do a, a sneak peek excerpts from the book. And um, so it gives you a good idea what kind of what the book's about, how um, uh, what, what some of my background is. I do the excerpts also on my LinkedIn page. Also looking, you're just Tom Pecora on LinkedIn. Yes, Thomas. Yeah, the formal on the LinkedIn. Yeah, this that's a whole other thing about LinkedIn. I mean, people, you know, there's just all this talk about people using that to find out people's networks and to kind of confirm oh, yeah. relationships and things like that. Are, are people still a little bit hesitant to use? Um, oh, absolutely. LinkedIn in your in your uh, community. I mean, uh, up until 2012, I was completely off the grid. I would, right. and, every, and every couple of years, I would do a deep dive to find out what the, what was on Google. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and luckily, nothing. Um, but then, you know when I retired and then I started to, to look at LinkedIn and started using it, it's, you know, it takes a little getting used to it to start to put stuff out that you would never, never say in public before. And, um, so it is, a, and people are using it to, to do network analysis, to find out who knows who. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah. it's also a great, it's a great tool. Yeah. And it's a little more, it's a little more serious sometimes than some of the other platforms as yes. well. I find LinkedIn is. Yeah. I'm speaking with Tom Pecora, Thomas Pecora, the author of the book Guardian, Life in the Crosshairs, the CIA's War on Terror. I have a little prepared blurb I want to say to sure. you. Um, your, I think as your stepfather had said to you, he said to you, come home when you can. And uh, I just want to thank you for your service, Tom. And I want to thank you for coming home to write this book. And uh, we're all going to be much better for it. And I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate that uh, comment. And thank you for being on the live drop. Oh, yeah. My pleasure. Yeah. You want to come back sometime? Absolutely. I'm kind of putting you on the spot. Okay. Great. Sure. (laughs) Let's do it. That's my discussion with Tom Picora, CIA veteran, author of the book Guardian, Life in the Crosshairs of CIA's War on Terror. You can find that on Amazon or other places where you get books. Also, you can find him on Facebook on the page called Guardian, where he also puts updates and excerpts from his book. End of transmission.